going to read um, from my novel, Tyrant Memory. Michelle mentioned it. And I wrote this novel around 2006, 2007. Um, most, of, most of the novel was written in Pittsburgh. I was in Pittsburgh in a residence uh, with the City of Asylum program. And originally was published in Spain in 2008. And last year was published in, in English. This novel takes place in 1944. Most of the novel, let's say 80% of the novel, takes place in 1944. And that was a special period in Central American history. Uh, we had dictatorships in Central America by the time. In all, in all the countries, with the exception of Costa Rica, of course. Uh, and, and this novel deals with the situation in El Salvador. Uh, I'm going to, to read some excerpts from the three parts of the novel. The novel is, is organized at, uh, with, it has two main narrative lines that takes place in 1944, and then, let's say, the epilogue of the novel takes place in uh, 1973. So the first narrative line of the novel uh, is uh, a diary, Aide's diary. And I'm going to read some, the beginning of the diary and some other parts of the diary. I this diary, Friday, March 24. It's been a week since Pericles was arrested. I expected him to be released today, as has always occurred on previous occasions, when they let him come home after a week. But now the situation is different. Colonel Monterosa told me as much at noon today in his office with a look of regret on his face because he respects Pericles. I'm sorry, Doña Ide, but the general's orders are final. Don Pericles will remain under arrest until further notice. I began to suspect that the general is angry or afraid about something else when, on that first day, I found out they hadn't locked him up in the room next to Colonel Monterosa's office. He's the chief of police but instead had taken him to one of the cells in the basement. The colonel told me he was very sorry, but the decision to deal more firmly with Pericles had come straight from the top. During his previous imprisonment, my husband could receive visits from friends authorized by, colonel, by the colonel. And we always ate lunch and dinner together in that room, where I'd bring the food Maria Elena and I had prepared. Now, Pericles is isolated, and they allow him to come up to that other room only once a day at lunchtime to meet me. But I suppose I shouldn't complain. Don Jorge's situation and that of other political prisoners is much worse. After speaking with Colonel Monterosa, I returned home and called my father-in-law to ask if he knows why Pericles isn't being released. My father-in-law told me the general has his reasons, and the best thing for me to do is buy my time. I did not insist, 
My father-in-law is a man of few words, loyal to his general, and Pericles' articles criticizing the government upset him greatly. Every time I ever ask him why they arrested my husband, he answers simply that acts of disobedience cannot go unpunished. Then I call my parents' house to tell them the bad news. My mother asked me how Pericles is taking it. I told her he seemed to have been expecting it, his only remark being, it appears the man is very frightened. My husband never calls him the general or Mr. President or the Nazi warlock like my father and his friends do. He simply calls him the man. My mother asked me if Betito and I were going to come for, over for dinner. I said yes. The youngest is always the favorite grandchild. Our neighbors came over for a visit this evening. The Alvarados expressed their regret, regrets that Pericles had not been released, though they are very careful when it comes to discussing politics. Raul is a doctor, but astronomy is his true passion. He has a telescope, and whenever a special phenomenon is about to take place, which he always knows about, like a meteor shower, he invites Pericles to stay up with him to wash it. Rosita, his wife, brought me some woman's magazine she got from the neighborhood circle, a club sponsored by the American Embassy of which they are members. He'd like to join, but Pericles doesn't think very highly of it. Saturday, March 25. I find relief from my solitude writing in this diary. It's the first time since we were married that I haven't been separated from Pericles for more than a week. When I was a teenager, I used to keep a diary, a dozen or so hours stored away in my memory trunk. I used to spend days in my room reading one novel after another, lost in my own fantasy world. Then came marriage, children, responsibilities. This morning, before my father left for his finca, we had a long conversation. I asked him if he could think of any way to pressure the general to release Pericles. He told me that in a few days, the Coffee Growers Association would meet with the ambassador, American ambassador, and he would present Pericles' case as one more violation of freedom of the press. He said it wasn't enough for the dictator to detain Pericles' boss, Don Jorge, and to keep the press club closed in January, but now he has gone after the columnists. But he warned me that the Nazi warlock has gone off the deep end and doesn't listen to anybody, not even to your father-in-law, he told me. My father respects my father-in-law, even though sometimes he calls him the cantankerous colonel, and he doesn't approve of his total obedience to the general. At noon, I brought my husband books and tobacco. We ate in silence and then talked to him. I then talked to him about family matters. He told me he's weary, weary of the lack of natural light and the damp. I don't like his pallor or that cough of his, which is becoming chronic. He repeated that the man feels besieged trust no one, otherwise he wouldn't have consigned him to the basement cell. 
and wouldn't keep him locked up. Clement dropped by this afternoon. He's outraged that his father is still behind bars. I told him his grandfather has recommended patience, for there is nothing to be done at the moment. My eldest son is hot-blooded, imprudent. He was cursing the general, calling him that little shit-faced dictator, saying that nobody wants him anymore. He should step down and leave the country. I suggested he show some restraint with his words. He promised he will come for lunch tomorrow, Sunday, with his wife and children. Monday, March 27. It is strange how sometimes when I write in this diary I feel nostalgic for my adolescence. Then I remember I turned 43 last October. I have three children and three grandchildren and I started writing this diary as a substitute for my conversation with my husband. I needed this time alone, Pericles' long absence, to get me to open this beautiful notebook and begin to let my fountain pen glide across its font color pages. I bought it nine years ago in Brussels, when we already moved into the house on Boulevard du Guayenne. In the mornings, after Pericles had left for the embassy and Clement and Patty for school, I would roam around the city for a few hours with Betito, who at five years old was too young to go to nursery school in a foreign language. I bought this notebook at a shop near St. Catherine's Square. I saw it in the window. I loved the design on his hardcover, and I immediately decided to buy it to write down my impressions as a stranger in that city, a fantasy I've been harboring since, ever since we crossed the Atlantic by steamship. But I never wrote in it, not till now. Friday of Sorrows, March 31st, 31. Oh, the horror of it. The general has ordered Pericles transfer to the central prison. There is no judicial writ, no legal process. That evil man is simply taking revenge on my husband, who knows for what reason. I found out late that this morning after I returned from the beauty salon when I called the Black Palace, hoping to hear of Pericles' imminent release. There was a tone in Colonel Monterosa's secretary's voice, evasive, and he refused to give me any information that made me worry, then afraid that my husband was going to remain behind bars. My weariness turned to suspicion when Don Rudecindo refused to take my call. Colonel Monterosa isn't here, his secretary told me, and by the way he enunciated each war, I knew the colonel was there, but didn't want to talk to me. So I hung up and dialed the palace again, but this time I called the receptionist and asked to speak to Sergeant Machuca, for I was certain he would tell me if something had happened, not only because of his respect for Pericles, but also because he owes my father-in-law more than one favor. And so it was. The minute he took the phone, he began speaking in an undertone so nobody would overhear him tell me that if I wanted to see my husband, I shouldn't wait till noon. 
I must hurry to the palace at that very moment because he heard that Pericles was going to be transferred. I asked him where they were taking him and why. But Sergeant Machuca said he had to hang up and told me not to tarry. I didn't waste a second. I asked Maria Elena to call my parents and my in-laws immediately to let them know that Pericles was being transferred to another prison and that I was on my way to the Black Palace to find out what was going on. Fortunately, my mother had lent me Don Leo, their chauffeur, to help with the morning chores. I asked him to drive me there as quickly as possible. He asked me if there had been an accident as we drove across the city at full speed. I told him about Pericles' imminent transfer, how on other occasions this transfer had been a way of masking the general's secret intention to do away with his political rivals. We soon reached the palace. I ran upstairs to Don Rodecindo's office. The secretary tried to stop me, but I had already pushed open the door. The colonel was talking on the phone and his face changed when he saw me. I stood right in front of him and demanded to know where my husband was. Don Rudecindo covered the mouthpiece with his hand, asked me to have a seat and wait a moment, then mentioned to his secretary to leave the office. After hanging up, he looked me in the eyes and said, this morning, the president called me personally and ordered me to transfer Don Pericles to the central prison. I was in a rage, possessed. I told him between clenched teeth that this was a travesty, that carrying out an unjust order was an act of cowardice, and I would cling to my husband and force him to take me with him. Then Don Rudecindo, glancing up at the clock on the wall, as if he hadn't even heard my insults, said that perhaps at that very moment Pericles was entering the central prison. I became quite distressed because I had assumed that my husband was still in the cell in the basement, but it turned out that shortly after Sergeant Machuca had hung up, Pericles was taken to the vehicle that transported him to his new location. I stood up and, as if spitting out my words, muttered, what is he going to do to my husband that I was going to say so-and-so warlock, but I control myself. Even mentioning him was degrading. So I stared with profound disdain at the general's portrait hanging on the wall behind Don Rudecindo. He told me that nobody was going to do anything to my husband. The president's intention was to gather in one place all those arrested, arrested on charges of acting against the political order while the prosecutor's office completed the legal procedures and filed formal charges and I will be able to visit him as prescribed by the law. I turned my back on him and left. Palm Sunday, April 2. Coup d'etat. Clement is involved at, up to his eyeballs. He was the one who announced the beginning of the uprising against the general on the radio this afternoon. And he's one of the announcers who continues to report the events. 
calling on the people to support the coup. I couldn't go to the central prison to see Pericles because the military is patrolling the streets. The Air Force has bombed the area surround, has bombed the area surrounding the Black Palace. Now I thank God my husband was transferred. Father is at the Finca and Betito is at the beach. There has been no way to contact them because all communication within the country and the routes into and out of the city have been cut off. Clement announced that the rebels have taken over the National Telephone and Telegraph Company. Maria Elena and I have come to my parents' house and we will spend the night here. Fortunately, I brought my diary with me. I am now writing in what was my bedroom when I was a teenager by the light of a candle because the entire city is in blackout. It's eight o'clock at night. Hope is spreading, but more so confusion. The day began with bad omens. I wasn't able to get in touch with Colonel Palma to have him authorize a visit to Pericles. On the phone, his wife said the colonel had left that morning and she had given him the message, but he had left no reply. You know how these men are, don't you, she said as, the, as if to apologize. Then I received a call from Patty in Costa Rica. She was alarmed to learn that her father was still in jail and that we have no idea when he will be released. I had a guilty conscience because I had to lie when she asked me if anything had changed. Mother and I went to 8 o'clock Mass. In his homily, the priest again criticized those who distanced themselves from Catholic Church and promote exotic religious doctrines that are far removed from the true faith. All this an allusion to the general's occultist beliefs. Friend stopped to talk as we were leaving church. Nobody had the vaguest notion that the coup d'etat will begin this afternoon. There have been so many rumors flying around for so long. I went to the central prison later in the morning with new provisions for Pericles and the hope of seeing Sergeant Flores or convincing the officer in charge to let me enter and at least give the basket directly to my husband. It was the visiting hour for common criminals. They didn't let me in. A guard with a roguish face told me that he would give Pericles the provisions, and I returned home with a horrible feeling of impotence and despair. To cheer me up, mother convinced me to eat with her at the casino. She even made me drink a rather strong aperitif. We ate a delicious paella and for dessert an exquisite guava tart. After coffee, we decided to leave, despite the insistence of some friends that we stay to play canasta. Now I can only thank God for washing over us. Mother dropped me at, at the house, where I found Maria Elena getting ready to go out. She was on her way to the three o'clock show at the Teatro Colón. I lay down on the sofa to take a nap. Half an hour later, Maria Elena woke me up, frightened to tell me that she had turned on the radio and heard that there had been a coup d'etat. It'd been in such a deep sleep, I'd been in such a deep, deep sleep, and I was so lethargic, at first I found it difficult to react. She explained how she couldn't get downtown because there were troops everywhere. 
how she soon started to hear the ratatata of machine guns and saw warplanes flying over the city and dropping bombs. Then I heard Clement's voice on the radio. He announced exuberantly that the dictator was dead. The Air Force and the infantry have joined the rebels, and the only resistance left are the police and the National Guard. Then other professionals and radio announcers took turns at the microphone, most of them friends of Pericles. And the most important words were spoken by Dr. Romero. When I finally understood the magnitude of the events, I thought of my husband and what might be happening at the central prison. I tried to call Clement to get more information, but I couldn't get through, nor could I communicate with mother or, or my in-laws. I told Maria Elena I would go to the central prison to see what was happening there. Perhaps they had already released Pericles. She warned me it was most likely extremely dangerous to be on the street at that moment, but she said she'd accompany me. I told her she should stay at home in case anybody called. She insisted on coming with me. The central prison is located about seven blocks from the, from the house. People were walking quickly down the street, everybody very tense. In the distance, I saw airplanes flying towards downtown. Many people were standing on the sidewalks in front of the open doors of their houses, waiting, the radio blasting celebrating the general's death. Two blocks from the central prison, a group of soldiers stopped us in our tracks and ordered us to go back the way we had come. I protested, but there was no way of, to convince them. Also, just at that moment, two airplanes flew very low overhead and loud explosions could be heard coming from near the Black Palace. Then I got frightened. I told Maria Elena that it would be better for us to walk toward my parents' house. There were no streetcars. I ran into several acquaintances in the street. There was tremendous excitement. It was, it was God's will that Mingo drove by at that moment. I told him we knew nothing about Pericles' situation in central prison. He explained that nobody knows anything about anything. The situation is very confusing. People knew only what Clement and the other rebels were reporting on the radio, that the 1st Infantry Regiment was battling the police in the area around the palace. The general was dead and the Air Force was supporting the coup. He told me he would drive me quickly to my parents' house and I should call him if I needed anything at all. Mother was beside herself. Tolneo had gone to get me and found nobody at home, and she, she had not been able to get in touch with father, and Clement's voice on the radio made her fear the worst. Slowly, she began to calm down. Soon, a few phone calls got through from friends who live in other parts of the city, and we spoke with the neighbors. We found out that the airplanes had missed their target. The bombs didn't fall on the Black Palace, but rather on the block of the casino, and there were fires and many dead in the streets. Mother explained that we have only God to thank that the three of us are alive, because the Teatro Colón, where Maria Elena has been headed, is on the same block, and it is still in flames now, late, late at night. Later on, later, one of the Castaneda's brothers, Clemens' friends, announced on the radio that the general is not dead. He is barricaded in the Black Palace. 
That warlock is going to win, my mother cried out in horror. I hushed her, told her not to repeat those words, for they would bring bad luck. I was stupefied when I realized what could happen to Clement and Pericles if the coup failed. The general's rage, his need for revenge, God help us. Okay, that's uh, part of the diary. And now I'm going to read of the other, the other part, the part of, is called the fugitives. <clears throat> the fugitives <clears throat> uh, take place, uh, starts the day after the coup d'etat fail, right? So they are on the run. They are escaping from the general. And these two characters, one of them is Aide's son, Clement, and the other one is Jimmy, his cousin. Clement, as we know, um, he was inside the radio station uh, supporting the rebels. And Jimmy is a captain, and he was in, um, he was, uh, in the Air Force. He was uh, in charge of, of doing the bombing of the city. He was not a pilot, he was a captain of, of artillery, but he was guarding the, the Air Force base, right? And now they are escaping, and in their escape they meet in a place that is a, a priest house in a town where Clement's grandfather lives. Clement's grandfather is a military that supports the general, but at the same time he's supporting his grandson in order that he survives, right? And so, there could be a little bit of confusion because this part is just dialogue. So I will read just a little bit because there are two voices dialoguing all the time and so it's not so easy. I'm not an actor to, to do that for me. Um, Hold still, Jimmy says, startled, bringing his index finger to his lips to demand silence. He lies stretched out and lanky on a mat on the wooden floor. He's barefoot and shirtless, wearing olive green trousers and a belt with a silver buckle. The knobs on the front door are gentle but insistent. Who could that be? Clement asked wordlessly, gesturing with his mouth. He's sitting on his mat, his arm wrapped around his knees, also barefoot and shirtless. Jimmy presses his ear against a crack in the wooden floor. Just a moment, come in, shouts one of the girls from the back of the house. Under them, they hear the slapping of flip-flops passing through the house on the way to the front door. Who's there? The girl asks. They hear a woman's voice but can't make out the words. Seems like a neighbor, Jimmy whispers. They hear a long, they hear a loud bang. Clement is startled. Fuck, what was that? He cries out in a whisper, his face twisted in terror. The girl dropped the door lash, Jimmy mumbles, without turning to look at him, his ear still pressed against the crack in the floor of the loft. I thought it was the guard, Clement exhaled with relief. They hear animated voices, laughter, goodbyes, and then the latch drops again as the door closes. The slapping of the flip-flop passes under them on the way to the back of the house. 
They brought a gift for the priest, Jimmy says, and lies back down, face up on the mat. How do you know? I heard. I don't believe you, Clement says. He also lies down on his back on his mat, his hands clasped behind his neck. I gotta get out of here as soon as possible, Jimmy says, talking to himself, pensive. This is a hell hole. Where are you going? There you don't know. Might bring bad luck. I'm not budging from here, not unless that priest throw me out. They'll catch us in a second out there. Don't have any illusion you are safe here. More than in the street we are. Then suddenly Clement sneezes, making so much noise that even he sits up and looks scared. Sorry, he says. I couldn't hold it. Jimmy turns to look at him disapprovingly. If someone happened to be walking by, the game would have been up, he warns. I said, I'm sorry, it's all the dust in here, he mumbles and looks around at all the junk in the corners, the cobwebs, the layer of dust covering the floor. They sit in silence, alert, alert, but they hear no sounds from outside. I don't think anyone could hear in the street, Clement says. Just a minute ago, we couldn't hear what the women were saying at the front door, so outside they can hear what we are saying either. I guarantee you, even the girls in the back of the house had a fright, Jimmy says irritably. What time is it, Clement asks. The priest should be back already. Jimmy pulls a pocket watch out of his trouser pocket, places it under the light from the skylight, and says, it's only 5.20. He said he'd be back at six. I've been shut up here four hours, two more than you. I gotta take a piece, says Clement. Think about something else, because you can't hear. It's my nerves, Clement says. I need a smoke. I need to stand up, walk around, he asks, looking at the slanted ceiling a few feet above their heads. This attic is like being in a dungeon. Just be thankful we've got somewhere to hide you in grade. You don't, see my, you don't see me complaining, and I'm taller than you. Go ahead and tell me again how they dress you up as a housemaid, Jimmy asked, cracking a smile. I told you, it was gardener's idea, the vice counsel. How the hell did you think to hide there? I'm good friend with Tracy. Luckily, she was home. I spent the night in their guest room, and this morning, after they dressed me up, they took me out in their car. Were you wearing makeup? You bet, and a wee, and I got plugged, just as pretty as can be. Look, Clement says, passing a finger over an eyebrow. And I was wearing underwear, and I slip, and a bra stuffed with wads of wet paper under the uniform. If the police had made me get out of the car, the only way they would have found me out is if they had touched me between the legs. And since your balls are probably about so small, says Jimmy, pressing his fingertips together, amused, there is no way they could have caught you. You can make fun of me as much as you want, but it worked. I wish I could have seen you, the ugliest housemaid in history. Go ahead, keep making fun of me. See if I care. I wouldn't have been here otherwise than 
that son of a bitch general of yours would have been smashing my balls like he did to that doomed Tito Calvo? Poor guy, Jimmy says, serious now, frowning. They are a gun of fucking sissies, says Clement. Jimmy looks at him disapprovingly. Only a bunch of us fuck ass fuckers could have let that warlock slip through their fingers on the highway, Clement upbraid him bitterly. Why didn't the tank blast the police headquarters when the bastard was there? His voice has risen impassioned. Eh? Why did the airplanes drop their bombs on the street around the barracks and not on the only target that matter? Jimmy sits up and orders firmly, lower your voice, they are going to hear us. Go order people around in the barrack, you thought, Clement answers. They hear loud knocks on the, door, on the front door. Clement sits up, all color has drained out of his face and he swallows in terror. Jimmy stumbles over to the corner where he has his jacket, gun, and infantry boots are lying. He picks up the gun and presses his ear against the crack in the wooden floor. The knocking, the knocking continues insistently. Nobody from the back of the house answers. Where did they go, those girls? Jimmy wonders. Clement is terrified. Now they hear somebody step running from the back of the house, the noise of the lash, an exchange of greeting, laughter, the lash again, the steps return. What's going on? Clement asks anxiously. Maybe this is all normal. It's a priest house. People are always visiting, bringing gifts. Jimmy says as he puts the gun back in the corner and lies down on the mat. Okay, now I'm going to read of the last part. It's, it's the second part of the novel, but it works as an epilogue. And it, uh, it takes place like, say, 54, 64, like 29 years later takes place in 1973. And so, and it, this is uh, the, the one that is talking here, or that is writing here, is the best friend of Pericles. Pericles is Aide's husband. And so this is the best friend of Pericles, and both of them are already very old, and, and, and he's just like remembering things and expecting Pericles. And, and I like this, this, it has a kind of epigraph that says, nobody ever kills himself, death is destiny. Old man Pericles called at 10.30 in the morning. Carmela answered the phone. Surprised to hear his voice, she invited him over to eat, telling him she was making a casserole he would love. A bit apprehensive, I took the handset. He told me he needed to talk to me. He wanted to know if it was a good time for me. I asked him where he was calling from. He said he was in the public phone booth in front of the hospital. I told him Carmela had already invited him and he should come without delay. I wanted to believe his voice sounded as it always did stranger to dismay. When I hung up, Carmela questioned me by raising her eyebrows. 
I must have given her a look of resignation. I returned to the terrace and my rocking chair where I spent my mornings, but I couldn't take up my reading again. Old man Pericles was barely two years older than me, and his time was coming. I felt uneasiness waft over me like a light breeze from the patio. I got up and stretched. Then I went to my studio, to my writing desk, and reread the notes I written down. I was thinking that I was I was thinking that what I needed was a scarecrow to scare off the crowds of in my mind. A short while later, I thought I heard Carmela in the living room dialing the telephone. I assumed she was calling Maria Elena, the Aragon's maid, the only person who now live in the house with old man Pericles. Carmela whispered so I wouldn't hear. I disapprove of her meddling in other people's lives, fretting over the old man as if he were a, defense, a defenseless child and not a 75-year-old adult. It will take old man Pericles approximately 45 minutes to get to the house. We live at the top of the mountain, across the street, across the street from the last bus stop, in front of the entrance to Balboa Park, which is bustling every Sunday with people who come up from the city. The house is small, but more than enough for two old folks like Carmela and I. The patio boots the most heavily forested section of the park. The air is clean, and the night sky is awe-inspiring. We've been living here almost 15 years. It is true, the area is getting more and more crowded. There is more noise. During the day, youngsters play on the street, and buses arrive and depart every 20 minutes. But at night, silence takes hold, broken only by the chirping of the crickets. Old man Pericles will take a bus from Rosales Hospital to downtown, then get on the number 12 bus, which will bring him here. Once a month, at least, he came for lunch, whenever he was in the country and not in jail or in exile, which fortunately he hadn't been for the last year and a half. The last time was when he was stopped by customs at Ilopango Airport, interrogated, then immediately deported by plane to Costa Rica. The press said the authorities had prevented a well-known communist from entering the country and bringing money from Moscow to finance subversive activities. I told myself that some perverse fear must be eating away people who can't treat an old man this way. Once in a while, at dawn, I still write a few lines in my diary. I jot down a verse, an aphorism. In the mornings, as the sun is rising, I draw, make sketches, sometimes just a few lines. Toward evening, I like to pick up my brushes, stand in front of the picture window overlooking the park, and contemplate the swath of green that joins the deep blue. For more than 50 years, such idleness has been my vocation. Old man Pericles always said that no art makes sense. I never argue with him, though on the other hand, though on 
one or another occasion, a crack will show up in his hard shell, and he's admitting to having sinned, that is, written a few verses. Never, of course, will he have read them to me. He will say that this business of lifting up one's tail feathers to display one's rear end is only for peacocks, not leathery old birds. Bitter ones, I will answer, and he will just smile because I remind him that at the beginning he too had illusions. The muse of poetry had also tempted him, but he had succumbed to a different temptation, the one he called the perfidious wench, wretched politics. Carmela entered the studio, woke up to the desk where I was sitting and digressing, she placed her hand on my shoulder and offered me a glass of fresh watermelon drink. She also had not stopped thinking about old man Pericles. Fifteen days before, he confided in us that he had just been diagnosed with lung cancer. We were sitting in the rocking chairs on the terrace, drinking coffee after lunch, and he said, without any preamble and without any particular emphasis while smoking, that they had told him that morning at the hospital the exam result in hand. No return, he said with a grin. Words I remember precisely because they were the same two words he would use whenever he wanted to mock the possibility of eternal return, an idea I sometimes like to entertain. But the doctor had told him they could treat him to prevent the spread and that he should return in 15 days for his first session. That's why, as the sun was getting hotter and hotter, we waited to find out what was going on. What could have happened? Why did he leave the hospital so soon? Carmela muttered behind me. I asked her if she had spoken to Marielena. She had been working for them forever. I guess even brought her with them once when they went into exile in Costa Rica. She told me she thought he was at the hospital. He left the house early this morning carrying a bag with his pajamas, pajamas and a few toiletries ready to check in for his treatment. She was surprised when I told her he had called us and was on his way here. Maybe there was some delay, I said. Marielena also told her that in the last few days, old man Pericles had been even more withdrawn than usual. He ate little, and he barely left the house, spending all his time in his office with the door closed. His cough had gotten worse. Okay, I think that's enough. Thank you.